Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me as always is my co-host Rob Lamorges. Hello everybody. And with us again this week is a very special guest, Ryan from the New World Pictures podcast. Ryan, thank you for joining us for a second week here on Get Me Another. Oh, guys, thank you so much for uh, having me back. This is so great. Uh, I'm so happy. It's been, a lot of stuff's happened over the past week, but uh, but I'm excited to like put some of that aside. It's been a busy week. Let's talk about Slumber Party Massacre. It, and it's, it's very appropriate that you're here this week because this is a New World Pictures film. To a degree. Uh, Corman, he didn't put a lot of New World pictures on the posters. He tried to keep it, a, I believe, a Pacific Films release. Really? And it is often put as a new, is often put as like a new Horizons or Concord film because he held on to a lot of the rights of his movies when he sold um, he sold the company and sold New World Pictures right. in 1982 or three. And so he held on to a lot of the rights mm-hmm. or rather he held on to like, he gave them first refusal if they wanted to like put them out and, you know, re-release them, but he would retain the rights. So he held on to the rights of this oh, for some reason, didn't put exactly new world pictures on it, which is something I was just reading about today, which I was like, I didn't know that because we did this as one of our early episodes. And I was like, this may not be exact. This might've been nearly new world. If I think about it, but yes, this is definitely made out of the new world system. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, Corman obviously produced it. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people that made this film are people that worked on a lot of new world stuff. So this is certainly birthed from the new world picture system. This is the slumber party massacre. The basketball team is planning a party, a slumber party. The party begins at 8 o'clock. Love it, too. You think I'm getting better? But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. Yeah, Courtney, you're underage. Negative. Let's go. I'm not going to eat that dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises. <laughs> and non-stop action. <laughs> sure no one's getting any sleep the night of the slumber party massacre close your eyes for a second and sleep forever written by notable feminist author rita may brown and produced and directed by amy holden jones i mean this is kind of a really interesting penny because rita may brown is a feminist author she is a lesbian author as well and uh 
Amy Holden Jones, I mean, she started her career working as an editor with Roger Corman, uh, apparently recommended by Martin Scorsese because she was an assistant on Taxi Driver and he recommended mm-hmm. her to to Corman. Uh, and she was an editor and she was she was scheduled to edit E.T., but then that film kept getting pushed back because of shooting on Poltergeist. So she was keen to direct a movie of her own and um, she approached Roger Corman about that. Yeah. She uh, eventually has to leave E.T. and because she gets an opportunity to direct That's it. That's crazy. But first, she takes this script off a shelf. It's originally called, I think it was called, was it called Sleepless Nights at the time? And um, it was retitled Don't Knock on the Door or Don't Knock on My Door, one of those, one of the two by Francis Dole, who was like a story editor for New World Pictures. And so she had retitled, she, literally just sitting on a, on a shelf collecting dust. She takes it. She reads it and sees like, okay, I'm going to do this prologue to this movie. It has like a prologue and it has a couple different things of scenes. I'm going to go shoot it with short ends because her husband is Michael Chapman, who just passed away a few years ago. The famous cinematographer who worked with Scorsese as well and um, is the inspiration for the movie she would direct next, Love Letters for New World Pictures. But um, um, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, so she, then they shoot like nine minutes of footage, show it to Corman. She was She was editing it. At, uh, in the evenings, this this nine minute short while she was editing How the Howling, and so she was able to do it on the same moviolas that she That's was amazing. The Howling on, and got temp cues. I think maybe even got some of the temp cues from uh, Joe Dante. He might have even supplied it because I'm sure he was probably cool with her doing that kind of thing. So she she put in some temp tracks, recorded this whole thing, and of course Corman saw it and said. How much did this cost you to make? And she said about two thousand dollars. And he was like, "You have a future in the movie business." And uh, said, "Do you? Want, how much would this cost you to make?" And she said about two hundred thousand dollars. And he was like, "Let's do it. Let's make this movie." But she hadn't read the whole script. Duh, oh, that is amazing. She hadn't, she hadn't read that the rest of it. That is amazing. She had no idea. She didn't know even know what it was. And then she. <laughs> She she had to read the rest of the script and then she rewrote it over four weeks while she was casting it. She rewrites the whole movie and uh, she's casting the film. Well, now, now, from what I understand, it was written as a satire of slasher movies, but she rewrote it and shot it in a way that was not. Well, again, it depends on who you ask. If you ask Rita Mae Brown, as she wrote in her autobiography, she says, I wrote it as a comedy and they should have shot what I wrote because it was funny. Now, if the, you listen to the commentary uh, on the on the on the Shell Factory disc, if you listen to her commentary, Amy Holden Jones says, "Now I was making a comedy because Rita Mae Brown's script didn't have a laugh in it." Now, comedy is subjective. Maybe one person's comedy Absolutely. was another person's drama, and maybe the wires got crossed there. I don't know. Um, you know, we had an interview with somebody recently who's a producer, uh, a future episode where they said they'd read this original script to airplane. And they said, if you look at the original script of airplane, it's not funny at all, but in the performance of it, it's hilarious. But if you read it, it doesn't look very funny at all. So I don't know if she read the script and was like, this isn't funny, but what we should do is a funny movie about slashers. I don't know. I don't know what the real answer is, but both oh. women are saying, I made a funny, you know, uh, parody of slasher oh, films. Oh, that's amazing. So both of them are saying the same thing. I don't know what was right or what wasn't. 
Oh, that is fascinating. That is really... Oh, wow. Uh, Slumber Party Massacre stars Michelle Michaels, Robin Still, Deborah Delisio, Andre Honor, Gina Mari, Jennifer Myers, and Michael Villella. Uh, and I gotta say, we all live in Los Angeles. The opening shot of this movie of like an LA, like that is Los Angeles. Like that is, a, that. like if you're not from LA and you think of Beverly Hills, you think of Hollywood, forget it. The opening shot of Slumber Party Massacre is the LA I know. It's just <laughs> houses. Yep. Yeah. It's the valley. Early on, if uh, you want to talk about are there comedic elements or not, the radio station at the beginning of this film is KDED. <laughs> so it is hard to imagine KDED not being. <laughs> oh, I had something. to. See, I, I'm yeah. like, I was never great with spelling. I had to. I was. I was like, I didn't have a piece of paper to write that down. I was yes. like, Wait, what is that? What is that? Um, well, before you get to the radio, there's the paper that gets delivered, which gives yes. everything like, you know, here's your backstory. Boom. Right there. Mass murder of five. Russ Thorne escapes. There it is. That's all you need to know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's and and it's I love the, I love the economy of this movie. It is an hour and 16 minutes. It uses every one of them. It is not wasting my time. It is it is in and out, and it's great. Well, and that is another thing that I think is probably due to the fact that Amy Holden Jones was an editor, but also was due to the fact that Corman liked to keep films to be a certain length, which is why he would often take films that people made and cut out at least 10, 15 minutes. If he purchased a film and recut it, he'd always make it a lot shorter. And the reason being, he wanted, in order to ship it across the country, so you'd ship the prints, you'd have to have an extra can if it's a little bit longer. So you want to limit the reels. Well, that's going to cost more. Because it costs more to ship. So if it's a shorter film, you're not to spend as much money when you ship the prints across the country. So that's, you know, that's the Corman way. Very economical. And she she really does a great job of that. Honestly, I love it. I, I love I love the economy of it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's uh, it, it's it's fantastic. And, and what's really interesting about this movie, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff, but yes. it, it's a movie that really illustrates the idea that it's not necessarily the story you're telling, but the way you're telling it. Because on the surface, if you just read a synopsis of this, it would feel like any number of other slasher movies that we've discussed over the course of the series. But there is a way that this movie tells its story that is fundamentally different. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to jump ahead into whether or not this is a comedy or not. But to me, the way this is told is interesting because most of the time, every time I watch this, I'm like, is this a parody at all or just a slasher movie that's fun and has funny moments that is what i would say and i think the fact that it's always presented as this is a parody is always throws me a little bit because i feel like it's just very um economically told story that has some jokes in it but it's a slasher film that is what it is to me but i always listen to amy holden jones and her commentaries i've listened to it a few times and i'm always like she sees this movie differently than i do and i'm always thrown a little bit by that but that's, you know, that's because once you release the movie, it's the audience's and it's no longer yours. Well, and it, it's an interesting thing because there is no such thing as a film if you want to get philosophical. I'd like to get philosophical, Rob. <laughs> yeah, there is only each person's subjective experience of that movie, right? 
So in that sense, right. there's millions of slumber party massacres as they get experienced. It starts to feel that way too, really, as the series went oh, on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, that is that. Well, there are thousands of these things, aren't they? Well, there's slumber party massacre, and then there's a sorority house massacre, which is its own yes. its own yeah. thing, which feels very similar. Yeah, yeah, similar but slightly different. A slightly different house. Yeah, there's that. Hey, you're you're gonna handle all those. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, and I, I watch some of the extras uh, after I watch the film. I hadn't seen it for a few years, but the mm-hmm. and I know I'm jumping slightly ahead. But the shower scene, okay, in particular when I was watching it's, it, this you're time, not jumping that far ahead. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's right oh, there. Yeah. It's, it's right there in the it beginning. It is pretty early. Yeah, and it, this is something that was clear. That was a mandate from uh, from on high. Corman, right? Yeah. You had to have mm-hmm. the nudity from yeah, mm-hmm. and. When I was watching it this time, I I had this feeling of just this is directed so like functionally. It almost felt like okay, here's the TNA, fine. It it almost felt like the you know like uh, yes. if you've seen yes. movies with like the board stripper who's just like okay, I'm taking off my clothes now. Okay, are you happy? Um, and then in hearing hearing uh you know uh amy holden jones talk about it 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 definitely you could you know she discusses kind of regret about whether or not she had to film it and i i you know you feel that in that sequence Mm -hmm. is that feminist or not someone who had to do something that they didn't want to and then that point of view comes through and i i for me there's no no real answer for it but um it's just fascinating to me and, and that's what makes all of this movie so fascinating in, in that regard well just to, to to take from that like i want to rewind a second because that that shower scene is early in the picture but it's not the first nudity we get in the picture because in, in at the mm-hmm. beginning we meet trish Devereaux, who's a high school senior and she's a member of the girls basketball team and her parents are leaving for the weekend and we open with her getting dressed like it's it's you open with with some nudity just in her bedroom. And I thought it was really interesting um, that she's getting dressed and, and what we, the way the camera frames it, we're not in the room with her. We're just outside at the door and the door frame is framing that action. So from the get go, from that first bit of nudity, there is a sense of we're seeing something we shouldn't be. It's mm-hmm. not like we're there. We're not we're not in the room. We are outside the room and the door frame is framing it. So there's already a little bit of of what feels like kind of a peeping tom aspect to it. Yeah. And in fact it 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 it, it later on in the film it then another nude scene is legitimately guys at the window leering in on the girls. So it like that point yes. of view, you're right. In both in both of that scene and the shower scene, it's always the nudity is always presented as like, this is the thing I have to do. And it ha- is presented in that way. This is, I guess, what you guys want to look at. So and what what I have to do for Corman is because, as Corman said in a commentary, I think for like Big Bad Mama, or maybe it was maybe it was Death Race 2000, but he called uh, nudity the uh, the greatest, the cheapest special effect there is, I believe, is what he said. Um, oh, my I hope God, I missed that's him. amazing. But- that is an amazing <laughs> quote by I mean, god it's like corman just knew that that's that's what you you had to i mean you had to have it you had to have it so and i and i and i think philosophically i think the feminist movement or, uh, or statement here is that she is making the movie like men do she's making what other men have directed yeah. and the biggest statement of it is saying 
okay, I made the movie that other guys are doing, but I'm a woman. And what's the big deal? And she got a lot of shit, I believe, for making this movie and for like it's, you know, violence against women and so many women, uh, so many uh, female characters. And uh, but they all team up and, you know, uh, try to take down. And they're good characters. There's the thing. They're really good characters. They are much more so than some of the other movies we've seen. The only thing I would argue is whether or not they are actually basketball players, because that is not I yeah, they, like no, they play, don't. They're, they don't play they're basketball. playing at playing basketball, yeah, really but they well. are not basketball players. Yes. you know what I mean. Like it is some very poor. One hundred percent. Not that that's what the movie was all about, but well, it's not a slumber so. party. Uh, you know, basketball slumber <laughs> party massacre. But you know, they show us a lot of basketball, and it's not good. What that's so interesting about that basketball scene, though, is that it, it's uh, you know we're watching them play, and you have the two guys. Who who later are are Jeff and Neil who are the the peepers later and they're mm-hmm. on the sidelines watching the practice talking about how hot the girls are so you've already mm-hmm. have this reversal of what most movies right. would have which is the guys mm-hmm. playing sports and the girls watching from the stands it is already flipped from from the get go and uh, it, it's 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 fascinating um, yeah that part I think is really cool the title alone for this movie the slumber party massacre. It's like already you're conjuring images of pillow fights and light experimentation, and it's or it's subverting those those uh, those ideas right from the get go, and it's it's doing it really really well. Yeah, and you get um you know a little bit of the 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 relationship between what Trish, who's our our final girl. And Valerie, yeah. who is also is she our final girl. I was just gonna say, is she our final? Do, uh, does yeah. it dispense with that that idea? They they, you know? they seem to go back and forth. What she's we have the initial final girl, then another girl takes over as the final girl, then the original final girl takes over for the second final girl. So we get a lot of, and then there's a third oh, final girl that comes out too. So we get a lot of them. We, yeah. we don't just get one. But they they do seem to play with uh, Diane as being the one who doesn't like Valerie, who's the new the new girl on the team, who's very very good. Yep. You get a little bit of that notion of uh, women being pitted against each other because only one of you yep. can be something. Uh, and mm. uh, I I'm going to guess that that's not by accident. Uh, and that that then, as far as on our character side, that split is really what causes a lot of trouble for them. And frankly, if that, if that, that viewpoint wasn't there uh, with Diane, I think more of the girls probably would have survived this movie because you wouldn't have had the split Mm -hmm. that then uh, fractured and really, really caused problems for them. Once Russ Thorne comes in. Yeah. Uh, We should talk a little bit about Russ Thorne um, as it happens. Um, So he is an escaped murderer. Um, he, he, oh, there's not much. You can't believe everything you read in the paper. It's not, it's not this. He apparently killed five people in 1969 and has now escaped. Um, reportedly, you know, and, um, and has impeccable fashion sense. I must say, uh, Uh, (laughs) oh no, I think I, I, he's got like a (laughs) denim jacket that I think I have. I wear when it gets, that's about his, that's his. Honestly, that's as heavy a jacket as you need in Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah, true, true. 
And he is doing one of the weirder performances you would get from a killer. It's just there. It's it's a delight. It's so strange what he's doing. He is he is like he, they shot him. It's almost like he is a character from another film, but they just got footage of him. It's so wonderful. I mean, not to say that it doesn't match up. I'm just saying it's just he's so on another planet and 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 on his own from what he says, like all by design. All of what he wanted was to to not have a rapport with the other female actors. He 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 does some weird stuff. Yeah, no, he really does. Just just his 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 face. I mean, first of all, let's just start with his name, Russ Thorne. But there's something about that. Um, it's not quite as good as Cole Trickle or Mason Storm, but it's in the ballpark. It's, yeah, it's, it's close. a great. Uh, now, Russ wields this ridiculously oversized drill as a weapon. Now, when we were talking about Halloween back in the first episode of this series, we put forward the suggestion that Michael Myers killing is not simply a sexual substitute. That, that while there is a voyeuristic element to Michael Myers, um, it couldn't necessarily be just reduced down to uh, as something as simple as the knife is his penis. That Carpenter's character was more ineffable than that. That being said, in the case of Slumber Party Massacre, the drill is totally his penis. Mm-hmm. No question. No question. In fact, the the scene where the girl like like slides down the wall and... And the killer is in the foreground and oh, his, yeah. she slides down between his legs yeah. and he has the drill going straight down. That was a shot that Corman apparently saw and loved and was like, perfect. And that's why he did the the poster the way he made it. Yes. Because he was just like, yeah, that's exactly right. And the actor, of course, playing the killer was also very aware that like this was his penis, essentially the drill. So when it gets knocked and part of it gets knocked off, you know, uh, that to him was like, oh, no. And and one of the actresses on the disc talks about how he would be off to the side with that drill, like putting Vaseline on the drill. Like and they were like, what is he? Oh, that's doing so messed to up. That drill. Like, what is he doing? <laughs> you know, like and so that I, it is it is very obvious that, that is absolutely what oh everyone's God. intending from the filmmakers to the actors. I mean, that's this is. To the poster art, like well, everyone knows, this is what we're doing. This is his extension of his penis. He even says, "I love you." You know, "I love you" takes a lot of love. Oh yeah, to do what I'm doing. To takes you. a like, lot of love this- to do what I do. Yeah, yeah. Got pretty. All of you are very pretty. <laughs> Please don't do this. I love you. Please, I didn't hurt you. Please don't do this. Takes a lot of love for a person to do this. Go away. You know you want it. You love it. Yes. I, I don't even know you. Well, also he's doing his 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 physicality. He said he took from a peacock, and so he's doing the peacock motions with his head while he's darting out and he's looking from side to side because he's trying to imagine the, taking the physicality of a peacock. 
for this killer. It's That's and he does amazing. And when you know that and you see him move, it is so weird how he's moving. And you're like, what is this guy? Well, he's a pe- he's trying to do a peacock movement. Oh, that is that is beyond bizarre. Yeah, like it's, it's um, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> it's super weird. He's doing some weird stuff. And again, like I said, he alienated himself from the other cast so that they wouldn't ever have any sort of rapport until they and and the other cat wow. and the women in the movie said it was really effective because when he comes up behind us in the bedroom. It's scary because I don't know this guy. I've seen yeah. him around, but he's always lurking, you know, around us and won't get near us. So it was like scary once he was around you because they, they didn't have any, you know, rapport with him. They didn't know who he was. We needed more Russ Thorne in He Knows You're Alone. I think that would have transformed yeah. that movie. Yeah. Because the guys kind of look similar. They like they're not that far face. apart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and but this is this is the 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 better version for by no, because there's there's points in it, he knows you're alone where that guy's just goofy. Like there's just like, oh, you know. Like when when she sees him from outside in what was clearly the shot, you know, one of the shots, one of the many shots, crib from Halloween in He Knows You're Alone. It's mm. just like, oh, it's a goofy guy in a and you know, like in a peacoat. And I'm just like <laughs> uh, this movie is it's is fascinating the way it subverts expectations from the get-go. So you have the two guys, Jeff and Neil, who encounter this telephone repair worker early on, mm-hmm. which is a job that is generally a blue-collar job done by men, but in fact it is done by a very attractive woman who wants nothing to do with these two high school boys. Like forget it. Like she's like, oh yeah, you know, they're not, you know, I don't, I really don't, you know. The, and what's amazing is they lose interest when she's not interested in them just in time to miss her being pulled into the truck by Russ and, and killed. And they don't see any of it. Cause once, once she's not an object, it's sure. like, well, it's, it's my little, she's just gone. It's, it is, it's, it's a fascinating little well, bit of this I can, movie. I, I can never watch this movie and not think about Jeff and Neil as two guys that clearly love each other. And their love for each oh, other, yeah. will, they will never admit, and it is unrequited, and they don't ever get a chance to fulfill it. And in trying to score on the babes, they're always actually just trying, I mean, they're just trying to one-up one another, and, and I just yeah. hope, I don't know, in some you know terrible, of course, teenage, confused way, trying to figure out, how can I actually tell this guy that I love him? It's the sadder part of the movie because they never really get to, but I can't see them any other way. It is. And I don't know if that's just me not being deep enough to see the fact that they are switching out the, you know, the male and female roles. And now I'm looking at it like that, but I guess I can't see them any other way. I always see them that way. I'm like these two guys love no. each other. I wish they would. No, just I agree. And, and the, well, if it wasn't 1982, if it had been 2022, sure. there might've been a chance, but sure. you know, in 1982, that wasn't going to happen, even if they hadn't met their 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 ends. Oh yeah, no, yeah, um, yeah. They could yeah. never admit it. It was like you know, you had to keep that such a secret. So no. sad, and that's why they're overcompensating with this woman who's Absolutely. fixing the telephone. Who they wouldn't is an adult woman, and they have no shot. Yeah, at even though they're, I mean, no. all of the teenagers in this, and this is a thing for most New World pictures. Whenever they cast teenagers, they look like at least 28, if not in their mid 30s. So like they all look very old, but they are supposed to be playing teenagers. Like this woman's never going to give you the time of day because it would be illegal to do so. Like you have no chance. Right. (laughs) And uh, a fun thing, because when you do watch a bunch of slasher movies in the wake of Halloween, you are going to find stuff that that is 
paid homage to in Scream films. Uh, the, <laughs> the the death by in the van in broad daylight on campus. Right. Uh, de- right. Very much Scream 2 uh, homage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just verbed, <laughs> I past tensed that, which is probably a crime. From the grammar police, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're gonna come knocking on your door later <laughs> shortly after that scene there's there's another kill which happens fairly early which is um linda one of one of trisha's classmates and uh she is stalked and killed in the school and i want to talk about this scene a little bit because i think it's exceptional um mm. and i'll tell you why and then you can tell me why i'm Hopefully you'll tell me why you think I'm right. Here's the thing about about Linda is I was rooting for her to escape so hard from the jump. And the way they invested in her character in just for someone who's going to get killed, you know, in the first half hour of the movie, usually you save that kind of character development for the so, so quote unquote final girl or whatever. But I was rooting for Linda so early and to have a character who I'm rooting to escape, who is behaving smartly. She's scared, but she's doing, there's a great moment where she's successfully hiding from the killer mm-hmm. and her blood, because the killer already kind of got her a little bit with the drill and mm-hmm. the blood is is seeping out under the door and she grabs a towel to st- soak it up. And it's like, I am so rooting for her to survive and for that to be invested in a character so early is an exceptional bit of filmmaking. And it's kind of emblematic of the whole film because on a surface, it's like, well, this is this is how these movies go. But but it's it's inverting all the expectations. It's an extraordinary sequence. And this is one where I don't know because I know the pedigree of the film, whether I'm reading too much in. But you have a girl in a high school locker room desperately trying to mop up blood her own blood before someone notices. And I know we've already oh, had God. Carrie, but I, I, you know, I, no, that's, yeah, that's a, that's fantastic. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I, I think it's of the kills in this movie. It's the most well-designed because it also is yeah. the one she, they, she designed it so she could really look at school. It's like, a, it's a great design of a, of a, of a scene that also starts with a fairly dumb premise, which is like, hurry up and get your book. Cause they're going to close the school. Like, I mean, I'm like, what? And lock it. Like, wait, what? What is it? It sounds like prison rules. You know, it's like, you know, there's no in and outs. <laughs> I mean, I knew they close, they lock schools, but this is just after schools ended. Like, how quickly do they lock a school down? But uh, teachers are still here. Like, do all the teachers have to immediately scatter? Yeah. Anyway, they, they, the way she shot it, she wanted to make sure she had a sense of aloneness. So that's when she takes the shot. It's in a cherry picker and it's from the very top of the gymnasium. So it's a very big wide shot of the entire gymnasium as she's walking around and because she wanted to give it a sense of, you know, this girl's alone. That's what Amy Hilton Jones was trying to say. Yeah. And it's super effective. It's Oh, really, it's incredibly really successful. Um, yeah. So it starts silly, but then it's like, because it's just, you know, it's the setup for the scene, which whether or not it makes any sense doesn't matter, but it's effectively done. It's a really effective kill. The whole scene where she gets locked up in that, it would, it would be terrifying, you know, like there's no word. It, it definitely feels yeah. in very short amount of shots. She, there's no, there's not a lot of room for her to maneuver. Forget the school getting locked. There's just not a lot of places to yeah. run to, which is done very economically. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about faux jump scares. 
because this movie has some of the best faux jump scares or for you cat people fans, your Luton buses. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it is, it is, it's fantastic. So th- we have the coach of the basketball team. Yeah. And she comes home and this is just after that kill with, with the, the, where we, you know, the killer's using the drill. She comes home, she's about to unlock the door and the drill comes through right at eye level through the door. And then the door is open and it's her handy woman, Pam putting in her peephole. And I was just like, that is one of the best faux scares ever. It was, so, it, it's just incredible. Yeah. And, uh, it seems like a, did she actually ever, I wondered, I think I saw it this time. I'm like, does she ever put the people in? Seems like she just drills a hole and is like, this is for your people. I'll see you around. I'm like, now what no, it's just done, a hole. You just created a hole in my door. <laughs> Not an actual peephole, but thank you. Also, where you're supposed to tell tenants when you're in their apartment. <laughs> so you came here unannounced well, and rolled into my door. These are the things I obsess over. <laughs> yeah, I, I know people here don't have great insulation in their homes, but the hole in the door is very bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The era of cheap very energy, large. I guess, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. right. Yeah, it's really going to come back and bite you in the winter. Uh, the actress who played Pam, the handy woman, by the way, is Amy Aquino, who went on to have an incredible career, including most recently she's on Bosch. She was on Falcon oh. and Winter. So like this was a first role of what was a very long and successful like that is continuing now. And it's just like I, I recognized her, but then I had to go look her up because I was like, I know I know that face, but it's it, it she was younger than I think I've ever seen her before. Huh. Um but she's she's great. Uh, like yeah. it's like, oh wow, that's uh she was just, you know. Uh from there. We then switch over to Trisha's house where the girls are getting together for the titular slumber party. Uh, and as we mentioned before, we don't invite Valerie, despite the fact she lives apparently next door. Yeah, And Valerie, <laughs> nope. I'm going to just jump the gun here, Chris, because Valerie's sister, Courtney, right? I believe. Yes. yes. Is our, uh, again, our prankster character that we often are finding in a lot of these she goes uh, pretty far with her pranks, um, further than uh, than the guy in the original Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, but you know, maybe, you know, somewhere in the Shelley, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like Shelley mm-hmm. from Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. You know, um, the only difference is, is that when she's when she's laying down in the backyard, she's also laying down on cardboard, which might be a slight giveaway. Like, <laughs> did she just happen to fall? On cardboard. She didn't want to get her pants dirty. Yeah. (laughs) I really feel like this character to me is like a line of demarcation for your enjoyment of this film. If you can accept this younger sister and be like, I'm okay with this character, you're going to have a good time with this movie. If you are like, this sister is annoying the shit out of me. Like, this is not going to be your ride. This isn't for you. This is like, it's not that she dominates the movie, but I just feel like, your willingness to accept this character is going to be crucial to your enjoyment of this film. Oh, I think she's a delight. I I do too. But I just think if this is going to annoy you, because she is like way too old to be playing this 12 year old. Like she is not whatever. Well, yes. Yeah. There is, 
there's a certain amount of like I you have to suspend your disbelief yeah. and you have to be willing to do that for this character. And yes. if she starts out annoying you, you're like, okay, I'm a little weirded out that this girl's supposed to be 12. She's definitely not. She looks way closer to age of the actual girl who's her older sister. Like this is yeah, I guess if she's twelve, it's then some of her stuff. It's problematic. I, I, I thought of her in my head; she was a little older. She's sneaking her 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 older sister's playgirls, which is hysterical. All of the girls in this movie have, are, are, you know, are very kind of like have these sort of full personalities and full, like they're not they're not goody goody girls. Like they are, they have like you know that they they're you know they bring liquor. They're smoking. Uh, the Maui Wowie, as they refer to it in in the movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, like, but at the same time, they they do feel they're they're fully rounded. They're not just there. This is a movie that wholly rejects the idea that that sex is death in in these movies. Like it is, it is absolutely repudiating that on a conceptual level because all of these girls have like sort of desires. Like it, in a lot of ways, they remind me of the girls from Halloween, from the first Halloween. You know, uh, with Lori and Linda and Annie, you know, mm. uh, we we when we talked about that movie, we rejected the idea that that sort of sex was uh, punishable by death. There were later movies that will embrace that idea. This movie wholly rejects it. Yeah. And one of the great things about the characters and, and the way that they've been written is that when you do have a. Uh, a movie that does have more of an ensemble cast. There are definitely the leads in this thing, but you're also, yeah. you, you have uh, an ensemble and the girls are playing off each other quite a bit. Um, you cannot get everyone uh, to, to the same depth, right? You just aren't going to get the, the amount of three dimensions for every character. The trick is then for the characters that you know aren't going to get the, the same amount of time to give them at least one strong thing right give the audience a handle so you get and that's where you get uh the arguing over who scored all the runs in the dodgers game last night and then they're going to call coach right um at home at home and find out which also again the (laughs) 80s were wild dude that would (laughs) not fly now but um yeah not they're not going to read the newspaper that was delivered (laughs) no 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 (laughs) no need the parents took it with them when they left. And Russ Thorne probably yep. uh, took it out of the bo- out of the paper box. He's like, oh no, I'm, I'm on the front cover. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go around to all these houses and collect all the papers up. So nobody, you know, nobody. <laughs> he was just, he they was won't know going a thing. From, he was going from bin to bin, just putting in 25 cents and then taking out every newspaper and just, yeah. you know, take, taking them all, rounding them all up. No one should know this news. <laughs> Taking newspapers and Barbie dolls out of the trash. That's what he was up to. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. Yep. <laughs> uh, what the girls don't realize, though, is that they are being watched. And from outside, there are eyes pouring over every inch of their bodies, piercing the supposed veil of privacy that they have. Oh, yeah. And on addition to that, there's a killer with a giant drill. Because the eyes that are watching them are not just Russ Thorns. It's Jeff and Neil, who, after failing to see the hot phone company girl get pulled into her truck, are now peeping outside their window. And if there is ever a personification of, of the male gaze, it is Jeff and Neil, who, while mm-hmm. they aren't killing anyone, are still committing a violation. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Checking out the girls, seeing them get naked. Yeah. And... What's interesting here 
and, and I'm not going to get into the, the nitty gritty details, but the conversation that the girls are having here, and, and frankly, their conversation in the shower as well, mm-hmm. it's not the kind of normal, like dead blather that that would be in the mouths of girls who are you know uh getting naked and being ogled at in in a film like this they're having Mm, real conversations about stuff that matters with each other and and again it's that juxtaposition of like these are not the conversations that you are supposed to show in this kind of movie with girls getting naked and again Mm -hmm. i i think that it just that juxtaposition makes it creepier because it's it's yeah. it's not presented in a way to frame it as titillating. It is framing it as these girls are just living their life, uh, and right. now these right. creeps and 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 that creep those creeps in, includes more than Jeff and Neil. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it includes us on yeah, the other side that, of this thing. Yeah, we are looking in on a, a private moment, um, and you know they're yeah. having conversations and they're talking about stuff like we're we're passing the Bechtel test time and time again we're not talking about dudes and guys they like and we're talking about stuff and we're watching this and it's again i think just amy holden jones saying you want you want to see boobs here are your boobs not if you're gonna make me feel bad about it yeah right i know right (laughs) i mean honestly not if you're gonna i mean you know it's uh, it, it it's amazing, and and I w- the way this movie tells its story and the way it approaches like and and there's all kinds like the girls change clothes, and they don't all get into cute little negligees. Jackie does, one of them does, but the yeah. others are all in like t-shirts or sports jerseys, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know like that things that you know girls actually sleep in because you know it, you got to be comfortable. It's uh. it's it's really it's really interesting and then the lights go out (laughs) (laughs) yes and then the lights go out um one other interesting thing i think about this movie is how it goes towards demystifying its slasher character russ thorne is not some unknowable mysterious evil like michael myers he's an a-hole with a drill and unlike Michael Myers, who can simply find anyone he's looking for, uh, like more than once he fails to find the people he's looking for. Like the girl that he kills early on, he he had failed in his search. It was dumb luck that that he was able to that he came across the blood trail. Like the the film actually goes to showing him moving the bodies around and setting things up in a way that you never see in Halloween. Like in the original Halloween. Let's just say it. How the hell does Michael Myers get Judith Myers' headstone from the cemetery all the way to the Wallace house mm-hmm. without anyone seeing him? That thing must be heavy as shit. But but we don't question it because he's Michael Myers and he's pure evil. But honestly, that must have been a lot of work. Here, Tons, we actually yeah. like see Russ Thorne get into position for the scare. Like He gets under the blanket. And when we see Russ Thorne doing mm. this, it's absolutely withering to his to his mystique. Like it just robs it of mystique altogether mm-hmm. because he's just an asshole with a drill. Yeah, and not only that, he's not even wearing a mask. He, he doesn't wear a mask like other killers. No. He's just he's just a middle aged dude in a denim jacket with a drill that apparently doesn't need to be plugged in, which is amazing in and of itself. Uh, for it to have that much power and that, is that much, but but you know, hey, that's fine. It's a movie, everybody. 
we can put that behind us, though that was a big uh, point of contention in our episode about Slumber Party Massacre, <laughs> was how is he, you know, <laughs> how is this drill having this much power? But, um, but yeah, like he, he, he does demystify the entire like kind of killer thing as well. And again, I don't know if that is a parody or a comedy or just stripping away those kinds of aspects for this film. I, I don't know what she's doing, but it does it does present a killer in a much different way. It's just a guy walking around in a denim jacket trying to pretend to be a peacock. So that's the kind of killer you're going to get in this movie. Yeah. Not, you know? I mean, honestly, as one does. I mean, if, if he didn't have the drill, he's just a guy in a denim jacket walking around yeah. pretending to be a peacock. I mean, you know, I, I, I see those people all over. I don't have a cool costume, so I got to make up for it somehow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I didn't get the hockey mask. I don't have a William Shatner mask that I just threw a lot of white paint onto. You know, I just, I got to do something different. And so this is how I'm going to do it. You do get the one thing uh, that's funny where he can't fit all the bodies in the trunk. He's killed too many people. Oh, yeah. it's um, hysterical. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't but, know where to put them uh, all. Yeah, but a lot of it's played a lot straighter than that. And I think, I think yes. you can hear him yes. kind of sigh about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's like counting them up. He's like, oh, yeah. one, two, three, four, uh, like a little, little a trunk uh, Tetris with the dead bodies trying to figure out how I fit all these things in there and how do I get them, you know, they're all in the right order. It's like However me. It's like me packing them. the dishwasher. Like it's the only thing I good I do in the kitchen is load the dishwasher. I can <laughs> I can figure out the geography of that in a way that yeah. that uh, it's, maximizes it's really my space. only skill in the, in that room. <laughs> You know, it's like you don't want the head to roll around in the back of the trunk. That's right. That's right. You don't want to lose any of these precious components. No, like he's worked hard. You know, he's put in yeah. the time, and you know, he, he, he you know, um, we we've talked a lot in in over the course of the series about how there's always a shift when you, you when the the characters realize that there is a danger, and this movie has one of the best moments when they realize that they are in danger when the pizza the pizza delivery guy shows up mm-hmm. and you know they and and it's clearly a you know temp by russ like he's cuz the pizza how much is it and it's 6 bucks man pizza for 6 bucks like this was a golden era uh my <laughs> god and in los angeles I, uh, yeah you can't yeah. get a slice for 6 bucks in los angeles you might be able to get a frozen pizza on sale for six dollars, maybe. But you could also, in the early '80s, get a two-foot long rechargeable power drill for like three dollars <laughs> instantly when you escape from from prison. Yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. Uh, but but the the pizza delivery they open the door for the pizza delivery guy and he just falls in, eyes drilled out, pizza still in hand. And, and like now, okay, well, there's a problem like, oh, oh shit. Um, you know, and, and, and from that point, the girls act very like rationally for them. Like they, Mm -hmm. they take like defensive positions and it's really good. Yeah. They also eat that pizza later. I love that moment. Jackie, he's, he's so cold. And then the the response is the pizza incredible. It's, it's a golden moment. It, that's definitely uh, Amy Holden Jones's. She's took a lot of uh, pride in that moment in the commentary, and like it certainly plays really well. That moment, I saw it at the New Beverly like a year oh, ago yeah. or so, and uh, 
it's it just plays really well. It's it's definitely like the funniest joke I think in the film. And there's a couple of funny jokes in this, but that's definitely the funniest one right there. Also, the guy who plays the uh, pizza boy is Aaron Lipstadt, who got his start through New World as well, and was the line producer on this. Oh, wow. but he requested to play the pizza boy, and he ends up directing. Is Android. that right? That's awesome. Yeah, and he ends up directing Android for New World Pictures. And then leaves New World Pictures after that and does another movie and then sort of gets into TV. And he's like still working in TV. He's been directing television for ever since. So he's had a very long career. But oh, that's, that's so but he started that is out very, think, very cool. Like even I think at um, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, I think is when he st- he's like working. He might have even been a PA at that time. I'm not sure. But that's how like he kind of started his way through. And then Android was the big project that they they brought to roger and they made partially uh i think partly on the sets or right after they'd finished forbidden world and then they shot in the studio shot the whole movie in that studio that roger had the lumberyard studios in uh, venice how much talent is getting missed these days by not having roger corbin being make (laughs) making these low budget pictures and giving opportunities to young people to start at the at the the ground level and move up uh you know i think that all of the good, I mean, the good that he did in terms of like, you know, giving those opportunities to, to young people who were obviously, you know, they were working for not that much money, but it, but it was a right. time you could afford to live on that much. It's just how much are we missing now by not having those outlets? It is, uh, I, I wonder about that a lot. Yeah, uh, I think we're know. missing out a lot. I mean, you can yeah. talk about some of the quality of some of the movies he made and stuff throughout his career, but like. You know, we are missing some, but we are missing people. We have some outlets, like there are some. The Asylum has been sort of an outlet, a more modern one, where they have done a lot of the sort of mm-hmm. knockoff exploitation, sort of in a Corman vein for like sci-fi. In fact, even Corman has made some of those movies for sci-fi channel and some of those, right. those rip-off movies. But they certainly are, are, are a stock company. But you still, you haven't seen like somebody give like, so many filmmakers are stars, so many writers, there are stars, so many producers, um, you know, uh, he, he employed Jack Nicholson for 10 years basically before anybody found him employable. Yeah. Um, and you know, shot his movies and his scripts and let him produce films and all this stuff. Like he gave such ample opportunities and we just don't seem to have it. Now people are just like, well, it's a different era. So you just go out and get a digital camera and you make anything you want. Well, yeah, but there's no distribution chain for that. Like you have to still figure it. You still have to go, you still have to go make your own success out of that. I mean, yes, anyone can make anything, but yeah. how are you going to get everyone to see it and then get yourself employed by other people? So all that, there's no one that is that kind of gatekeeper. And that's not to say that Roger Corman didn't chew up some of these people and spit them out. Like he he definitely was taking people saying, oh, okay, sure. come in, make a movie for nothing. And he always knew you were probably going to leave eventually. And he almost kind of wanted you to because he was never going to, give you more money than you wanted or give you more resources that you wanted. He wasn't going to do any of those things for you. So like you would eventually have to leave him because you were like, I got to make a movie without these, all these restrictions, but at least he gave all these people their first opportunity. And everyone's always been grateful about that. And and it's the difference too of in the modern era saying, Oh, go shoot your own thing, which is valid, but it is also, you're asking someone to be an entrepreneur versus they used to be able to, you you and, and the paycheck might have not been much, but you didn't have to go out and secure funding. Like you didn't have to be a business person. You could kind of be an artist, as as odd as that might 
seem to be mm-hmm. talking about working for Corman um, because he had that handled. And so it allowed you yeah. to do what you do, um, it, you know, within his box, <laughs> you know, which might have been fairly strict at times. But, yeah. Um, and so it's just it's a different thing. And people forget that, like, he before he started New World Pictures was a director. He, yes, produced a lot of films for American International A, a very good one. But actually a very skilled director and his Poe series, like, is an excellent series. And so he's Oh, actually, my God. The Corman Poe cycle yeah. is so good. Yeah, he's, a, he's actually- Those movies a, are beautifully made. He's a real craftsman. When you watch those films, you're like, this guy, yeah, he knew how he made schlocky movies or made movies for pennies. And sure, but this guy actually knew how to make movies. Sometimes I think when filmmakers had problems with Corman, I think it's probably because Corman knew he wasn't, you weren't talking to a guy who didn't know how to make a movie. And you're not talking to a guy who doesn't know how to direct a movie. Yeah. He, but once he starts going in the business of selling movies, he basically stops directing. So he always was like, I'm going to, yeah. he would every year be like, New World's going to make all these movies and set out this plan and I'm going to direct another one and I'm going to get back in the director's chair. And he never did. He didn't forever until like Frankenstein Unbound or whatever. And so like it was Frankenstein Unbound. Yeah. It took him forever to get back into the director's chair because it is so hard to be like, I'm going to go direct and make my own movies, but also run the studio and also distribute all these films. Like those two things are not usually the same thing because it's impossible to do both. It's impossible to like, I'm going to start my yeah. this company, as you're saying, Rob, like I'm going to, I'm going to become an entrepreneur and sell this product, which is my movie. That's a lot. It's like two different, it's like having two different brains, you know, like the one to make the movie and the other one that's so savvy at being able to sell it. It's hard to do both. And once Corman became the seller, he never really be never directed. Uh I want to for I want to going back to to Slumber Party Massacre. I want to talk. There's a brilliant scene in this movie where um, yes. Valerie, who is next door, and does not yet know that there is danger. She is watching a horror movie as one of the boys. I can't remember with Jeff or Neil is running across and trying to basically you know like get inside and say and 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 russ is kind of bearing down on him and the way that scene mm-hmm. is cut together between the horror movie on television and the killer approaching yes, it is fantastically yes. done it reminds me of the scene in halloween where laurie is running across the street and michael's coming from the wallace house it it's it's fantastic and it's again it speaks to the the, the level of directing in this movie is so is so good. It's so high. And that scene was just beautifully directed and beautifully edited. My goodness. Yeah. It, it, it speaks to, I think why Corman often looked to his stable of people and would go to his editors to become directors. I think he uh, really enjoyed editors and really, and gave a lot of editors. I mean, Mm. Joe Dante, Alan Arkish, Alan Holzman, uh, Amy Holden Jones here. Like he, because that sequence, when you're directing it, you, you've got to think she knows how to cut this together. Like this is all, she yeah. knows how to edit this whole sequence. Like she's not, this isn't just something they, it came together. Just, uh, I you just, just came together in the editing room. Who knew? Like she knew this, this was all on purpose in her head. She'd already knew how to edit this whole sequence together. And that's why you get that sequence. And that's why I think some of the better, people to come out of Corman were people that knew how to edit, you know, they were all editors. And if you're Roger Corman, hiring an editor to be the director is great because they, they don't shoot more than they need. 
because you don't want <laughs> yeah, them to yeah, do true. that because it costs true. money. You're yep. not gonna you're not gonna That's Annie right. Hall a Corman movie, right? You're not. Oh, we'll right. find it in, <laughs> in the editing. No, not gonna happen. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We're not gonna just keep shooting, and we'll figure it all out. <laughs> uh, there, there's an interesting moment where, uh, well, both Jeff and Neil both get killed. Like they're 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 done, and um, you know where where Diane, one of the girls, comes back, and her boyfriend, who is waiting in the car, comes back, and his his head comes clean off. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's extra, it's an extraordinary moment, and. Um, you know, she ends up getting killed when she when uh, she ends up getting killed, and then you know Jackie ends up getting killed when they try to open the door to let Valerie in. Um, and then there's an interesting moment when Valerie's outside, and they won't let her in. And Trish even puts out the idea that maybe she's in it together with the killer. It's really interesting. Yeah, and that that just goes back to the the idea of you know the 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 girls having been pitted against each other in some fashion. That's just kind of set yeah. up you even get that that wonderful uh, mm. uh that shot around this time when they're arguing about valerie right and russ thorne is yeah. crawling in through the window behind them and they are so yes. they're just mm. so focused on the wrong thing they're 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 complaining mm-hmm. about another woman when the man who is the actual threat is sneaking up behind them because they're looking in the wrong place well, and they barricaded themselves into that room at that point. And, and, and much like a movie we talked about last week with Hell Knight, where it was the carpet that came up here, it's, it's, it's Russ yeah. coming in the window. And it, you might not notice it at first because your attention's focused on the girls in the foreground. But then once you see him come, it's like, oh, oh no. Like, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And um, Trish hides in the closet, which is perhaps the first time in one of these movies that somebody hides successfully. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, they do. They do hide very, very well. And they, he hides. He, why does he hide all the bodies in a trunk, but one he hides in the fridge? Is it just because he ran out of space? Oh, the fridge bit is so great. Like that's. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a classic. Uh, like, that's a total classic moment. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Okay. So I think at this point, I think we need to talk about the finale of slumber party massacre because it's phenomenal. Like, uh, so Valerie and Courtney find Kim's body in the fridge and what is a great, a great visual gag. And they finally realize a killer's there. Coach Jana shows up and like the badass she is, she takes on Russ with a, with a fireplace poker. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is an incredible, it's absolutely an incredible moment. Um, and, you know, Courtney then is hiding under the couch. She trips him and Jana just starts hitting the crap out of him with the poker. And it is it is fantastic. And then Trish comes out with a knife and stabs him. But and and it's the the the, the ending of this, the, at least the first part of the ending, because it continues, is it's an incredible sequence. Mm-hmm. It's really, really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, the, she does everything with the fireplace poker except for actually poking him with it and trying to stab him. She definitely beats him with it, but does not try to use it as any sort of, you know, stabbing instrument. That that she saves for Trish. Yes. And it sets up the series of like, is he dead or is he not? And he continues on. And I think this is where like the score for this movie is actually done by Amy Holden Jones's brother. But it and while, it, you know, congrats to him. But it does. It's not quite uh, the if I can if I could say something uh, slightly negative about it, it. This isn't the 
Halloween score, obviously. This isn't Friday the 13th score. This is not one of those classic scores. And you and it, it with somebody who has a better idea of how to write scores, I think some of those moments could have been even more punctuated because a lot of those moments of a killer rising up again, all those things are punctuated by scores. This doesn't do that. So it lacks a little bit sometimes because of the score. Well, it, it the score feels a little bit like uh, uh, it, it feels like uh, the music from a universal horror film played on a Casio yeah, keyboard. Yeah, yeah. I, I, as Amy Holden Jones says, and we kind of made fun of her. She, she, she says like, "Oh, he he did the whole score only on one one uh, keyboard." And when we were discussing the movie, we were like, "Yeah, that's kind of the problem with the score. <laughs> like, if you bring in maybe another keyboard or two and try to mix up the sounds, and like you're doing it on one thing, like it's and it sounds like it. You know, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's not like we're yeah. all minds blown." He only used one keyboard. Like, I mean, yeah, it sounds like one guy with one keyboard in a room making some sounds like it's not, you know, could have been a little bit better. You know, that's all. But it's his first go. Yeah. But I, as far as I know, but, you know, uh, yeah, it lacks a little bit. You lack a little bit of that tension that a score really would have given you. Still a good ending. Though. But this final Still fight. So then, then he does, you know, Russ Thorne is not done yet. No. Oh, he's well. He's not done yet because he he gets the drill and he he slashes at the coach. Which I, by the way, in my head canon, that hope I hope the coach lived. Like I I like the coach so much mm-hmm. that I hope she she was able to. You know, it was a stomach wound. If she got to the hospital in time, I'm hoping she made it because she's great. Yeah. But yeah. the fight then spills outside, and it's it's. You know, this is where we get, you know, this is where we get what is absolutely the signature moment of this film. Valerie appears with a machete and she chases Russ into the backyard and she cuts the drill bit off the drill. Mm -hmm. And it is a it is a fist pump moment if there ever was one. And I love I love the little plop. When it lands in the pool, it is so withering. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. It is the most justified emasculation I have ever seen. It is fantastic. Yeah, and and, and leading up to that moment, what's so great about her grabbing that that machete is another very well filmed, I think, comedic beat, which is her going in and going down and getting the the, the saw drill and racing up the stairs with it, and you see the sort of wire unwound as she's racing up the stairs, and of course she runs out of <laughs> out of lead there and yanks her back down because you know the thing's plugged in which is great cuz uh, it's a funny moment though the whole yeah. the whole movie the guy has been moving around with a drill that doesn't need to be plugged in but it's funny that they had this moment that you yeah. know it is a very like i think that is another one of those moments it's like okay that was a comedy moment like there's no doubt about they thought that was going to play really well yeah. yeah no absolutely and then you know, he she cuts off his hand. He ends up going in the pool. Like it, it's it's all great. And then of course you have one more beat where he comes out of the pool, and you know that's when uh, you know that she comes in for the final. He gets impaled on the machete, and it's it, the whole final sequence is so good. Um, yeah, it's it's a terrific movie. And the the end of this, I mean, Russ Thorne. I'll, I'll just say he's an incel before that term existed. Because this guy, you know, he, he you get a little bit of his of his bullshit 
like uh, like reasoning for this when he tells her, "Oh, I I love you, and and I love all of you. You're all so pretty, and you know, oh, you you know, you know how much love it takes to to do all. It's all it's all you know. Honestly, he's probably on a message board right now complaining about She Hulk. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely. The, the the amount of uh if he lived in your neighborhood the amount of next door posts about this guy would just be outrageous <laughs> oh god uh, <laughs> yeah um yeah this guy yeah this guy would be a terrible follow on twitter this guy is just like oh please How oh yeah oh him? no he, instant uh, inst- instant no. block yeah the worst yeah <laughs> no it's it's you know it, 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 god you know uh it's yeah, and 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 again, it's it's similar to a movie we talked about early in the series, um, New Year's Evil, where it, it, it has mm. that similar. In some ways, it's a very realistic motive because it's it's that just entitlement of. Now, most people don't take it to murder, for goodness' sake, but like it's it's that entitlement of I deserve this. You're not mm. a person; you're an object that I deserve to have, and it's mm-hmm. uh, you know. It's it's uh, it's nonsense, and uh, you know I, I hate I, to say it, the most unrealistic thing about this whole movie is that there's that much thunder and lightning in Los Angeles. There's never that much thunder and lightning in Los Angeles. I mean, maybe in the early '80s, but I just I don't remember that being true. I, I you know, growing up in Southern California, I just that was not my experience. But yeah. Yeah, and I think I think what makes this movie so economical is maybe not not even just uh, the running time, but are, are, they skip over having to explain who he is. There's no Doctor Loomis. Yeah. There's no like, what? Why is he crazy? It's just he's crazy. He's killed people and he escapes. How do you escape? It doesn't matter. We, that whole part of it, we're not even. Gonna, we're going to skip over all that. It doesn't matter because yeah. we're just going to get right to him. Yeah. If you made this movie now, down. there'd be a whole sequence of him escaping. And that would be a whole thing at the beginning, and it would it would drag the movie down. And, and it's interesting to me uh, because a few whatever a few episodes, a hundred episodes, I can't. It's all blurred <laughs> at this point. But in Final Exam, oh, there God. was something similar where there was an escaped killer. Right. And really, they right. don't do any, and that's it. Right. With, with no mask. No mask. Yeah. No deformities. No, no he's def- just yeah. he's just a guy. He, just uh, a dude. But that movie did not have as much going on. And so I felt the lack of it. And right. I know, mm, I know Kristen. Mm. here it's very much because the key, as you said, they don't waste time on it because they are doing all of these other things. And so, you know, you, and it's just, it, it's fun that it shows even something where you, you have kind of at least an eighties slasher formula, but really it's all modular. Yeah. So what we're doing here is, you get to pick and choose. Uh, but when filmmakers kind of pick and choose nothing, <laughs> you then start to uh, feel that lack. But yeah. here mm-hmm. it's it's jam-packed just with other things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think that might be a good place to bring us to the end of today's episode. Ryan, we have to thank you so much for joining us two weeks in a row. It was a real pleasure to have you with us. Uh, before we go, can you tell people how they can find you and the New World Pictures podcast, you know, out there in the world on the socials? Sure. You can find uh, we're on Twitter. We're uh, at, uh, at the New World Pod on Twitter and we're on Instagram, Facebook. You can find us all over the place. Of course, you can look us up. New World Pictures podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. We're we're all over that. So you can follow us and listen to us there. Um you know, um, so that's where you can find us. 
we're all over the socials. And it's a great show. It is such a terrific show. If you haven't checked Thank out the guys. New World Pictures podcast, uh, they have they have so many great episodes. Uh, you know, with uh, from both the Corman era of New World as well as the post Corman mm-hmm. era and uh, nearly New World. It is a, it is a terrific show. You guys are 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 great. Thank you so much. Same with you guys. I really dig your show, and I'm so thrilled to be your first guest happy to come back two weeks this was this was more than worth it for me so thank you and so our much. second guest our yeah. first and our second first guest and it's, second. It's, first it's, and second. it's fantastic i know i'm very fortunate and i i love your show and and i'm so so happy to be here so thank you guys very much for having me on i really appreciate it oh thank you uh, and that will bring us to the end of today's episode of Get Me Another Holly. Please join us next week when we will be discussing three more slasher movies all of which have a bit of a holiday theme trick-or-treats uh, the Dorm That Dripped Blood, a.k.a. Death Dorm, a.k.a. Pranks, and the controversial Silent Night, Deadly Night. We thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing, following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. And if you like the show, tell your friends about it, tell your enemies, tell people you feel neutral about, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.